lot of you probably have heard the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer before. In case you haven't, or if you haven't heard his story in a while, let me give you a refresher. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian, pastor, and an anti-Nazi activist who had who was executed by the Nazis in 1945 for his involvement in a plot to assassinate Hitler. Starting off really light this morning. He was widely regarded as one of the most influential Christian thinkers of the 20th century. He wrote several books, including The Cost of Discipleship, where he contrasted the concepts of cheap grace and costly grace. According to Bonhoeffer, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. On the other hand, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, man will go and sell all he has. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift that must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Costly grace is also the grace that enables us to forgive others as we have been forgiven by God. Bonhoeffer believed that forgiveness is an essential component of Christian life and community. He argued that sin isolates us from God and from each other, and that confession is the way to break through this isolation and restore fellowship. He wrote this, In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought into the light. The unexpressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged. All that is secret and hidden is made manifest. It is a hard struggle until the sin is openly admitted. But God breaks gates of brass and bars of iron. Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. The sinner surrenders. He gives up all his evil. He gives his heart to God and he finds the forgiveness of all his sin in the fellowship of Jesus Christ and his brother. Bonhoeffer also emphasized that forgiveness was not a one-time event, but a continuous process that requires daily repentance and renewal. He also wrote this, Forgiveness is not something that can be done once for all time. It must be done again every day, indeed every hour, because we are always sinning against one another. Bonhoeffer also recognized that forgiveness is not easy or cheap, but costly and sacrificial. Again, he writes, Forgiveness means bearing with one another's weaknesses. It means suffering with one another's sins. It means taking upon oneself what one could just as well leave to others. It means accepting others as they are. It means being ready to help them whenever they need help. It means being ready to die for them if necessary. Now, Bonhoeffer lived out his theology of forgiveness in his own life as he faced persecution, imprisonment, and death for his faith and resistance. He was able to forgive his enemies and pray for them even as they killed him. 
In Isaiah chapter 1, 16 through 17, we see part of the decree of the purification of Jerusalem, where God's people are told a few things. Now you can read along in your Bible or on your phone, but it's also going to be up on the screen. Isaiah 1, 16 through 17 says, Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight, stop doing evil, learn to do what is good, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Now, one of the prominent statements there is pursue justice. Over the past few weeks, we've been talking about righteous anger versus radical forgiveness in a series called Unoffendable. The crux of the argument that I'm making is that there is no allotment in Scripture for what we call righteous anger. That human anger cannot be righteous and cannot be wielded in a righteous manner. But those who disagree have a very valid question. What about injustice? Aren't we supposed to be angry about injustice? What about those horrible things that are happening in the world? What about horrible things that have happened to me? Am I really just supposed to let all of this go? And that is a totally fair question. Can it really be true that we can address injustice without anger? I believe the answer is yes. In fact, I believe we can address injustice much better without anger. Now, at this point, it's critical to stress that justice is important to God. We should not walk away with the impression that injustice isn't a big deal or that followers of Jesus shouldn't be concerned about the many forms of injustice that we encounter in the world. Injustice is a huge deal. It is something that moves God's heart and moves him to action. And therefore, the same should be true of us. We should take action to confront injustice wherever and whenever we can. We just don't need to get angry in order to make that happen. That's the myth that we've been addressing. Aren't we supposed to get angry about injustice? Biblically, the answer is no. What we're supposed to do is actually do something about it. And that's point number one. Do something about injustice. Now, the example of Dietrich Bonhoeffer reveals that it is better for us to respond to injustice with a clear head rather than being clouded by anger. Now, when talking about this with people, the idea that the Bible doesn't ever endorse human anger as a solution for injustice, I get this reaction particularly from men. But we've got to do something. Yes. Agreed. Do something. Take action. But if we don't get angry, we won't do anything. Why? You can't just do the right thing because it's the right thing. The Bible gives us ample commands to act but never ever says to do it out of anger. Instead, we're to be motivated by something very different. Love and obedience born from love. In fact, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, it's not on the screen, but Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, the defining motivation, that if we do something, even something really good, even something for the kingdom of God, but we do it without love, it's just a bunch of noise. 
acting out of love to show mercy, to correct injustices, to set things right. It's beautiful. Love should be the motivation enough to do the right thing. And it's not love like a fuzzy abstraction of cuddling with your puppy. It's not that kind of love. It's love as a gutsy, willful decision to seek the best for others. What the world needs, I think you'll agree, is not a group of people patting themselves on the back for being angry. And there's a lot of that happening in America. We need people who actually set things right. Now think about this. We don't want those responsible for administering justice in our society to be clouded with anger. As Dallas Willard said, whatever you can do with anger, you can do better without it. I'm pretty sure that I have mentioned traffic and driving in every single one of these messages so far. And so I'm not going to break the tradition. (laughs) Most of us have gotten pulled over for speeding before, right? I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I'm sure most of you have felt this guilt before. It's a common mistake. So let's picture yourself on the side of the road, waiting for that officer behind you to get out of his car, walk up to your window, and you really don't want a ticket, even if you probably deserve a ticket. How do you want that officer to approach you? With understanding that a lot of people make this mistake and that he might even let you off with a warning. Or angry. This is the fifth speeding infraction in 30 minutes, and he can't even finish his coffee, let alone fathom how no one can just follow the speed limit, and he's already handed out his last slap on the wrist. So now he's going to give you the biggest ticket he's legally allowed to give you to teach you a lesson. Which cop do you want there? Or think about standing in court. Let's say you had a bad night and did something stupid. You were driving home, texting and driving, and you rear-ended someone, giving them whiplash, damaging both vehicles. You end up before a judge for reckless endangerment or whatever, something like that. Do you want that judge who is impartial and level-headed? Or do you want a judge whose brother is currently in the hospital after another person who was texting and driving plowed into his car earlier that week? In both these instances, the angry cop and the angry judge, they would have understandable reasons to be angry. But it's also clear that that anger could poorly color how justice is metered out in both these situations. We want people in these kinds of positions of authority to serve justice that is untainted by personal emotion. That's how we better ensure that the punishment fits the crime. And the same thing should be the rule for us, that we react out of God's purposeful love and a level head, not colored by our adrenaline levels or our blood pressure. That's how God loves us. That's how we should love others, even in the face of injustice, especially in the face of injustice. However, a more significant issue arises drawing from years of interacting with numerous individuals who identify as Christians, it's not just a matter of being inattentive to the idea that God loves us. I suspect that many among us actually struggle to believe it. This suspicion is rooted in our behavior, which often reveals our true beliefs. Our professed beliefs aren't solely defined by our words, but by our actions. And from what I've observed, a substantial number of us expend tremendous amount of effort 
trying to win the favor of a father who is already well pleased with us. We toil, we stress, we even torment ourselves with the pursuit of acceptance from God. And I could spend hours reciting scriptures that emphasize how we are no longer bound by the law and how through faith in Jesus Christ, God has adopted us into his family. However, I'm well aware of the inevitable response. Christians lining up to argue that it's well, not entirely true or that the core issue lies in our immediate need to stop sinning and work harder. And it's no wonder that we find ourselves irritable all the time. We become displeased with others because we're convinced that God is displeased with us. We may believe in God's love, but deep down we suspect that it's conditional. Contingent on us straightening out our lives. This is a heavy burden to bear. If Christians indeed rank as some of the most easily offended people on the planet, this burden goes a long way in explaining why. We carry the weight of believing that God has imposed over 600 rules on us in the Old Testament, rules that we know that we cannot perfectly adhere to, and that he's displeased with our efforts no matter what we do. Nevertheless, we persist in trying to meet these standards, which leads to immense frustration with ourselves. And moreover, when we witness others not putting in as much effort as we think that we are, it triggers a sense of righteous indignation. We hope that God will eventually hold them accountable because if he doesn't, we question the purpose of our striving and sacrifices at all. And so we think that our anger in and of itself is a righteous action on God's behalf. But anger does not lead to action about Injustice. It leads to inaction. And that's point number two. Anger leads to inaction. It's one thing to be aware of injustice and disapprove of it or to get angry about it. It's quite another thing to act and advocate for justice in ways that produce real change. Ultimately, that's what God has called us to do as his followers, to take action to seek justice, to follow God's lead by taking steps to make things better. There's an interesting moment in the Old Testament that illustrates God's desire not just to highlight injustice, but also to promote justice. Speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord gives a series of powerful instructions to his people in Jerusalem prior to their defeat and destruction by the armies of Babylon. Basically, God tells the people of Judah from the king down, to stop playing at religion and start actually doing something that reflects his values. Namely, God wants his people to do justice. We'll read Jeremiah 22, 1 through 5 here. It says this. This is what the Lord says. Go down to the palace of the king of Judah and announce this, this word there. You are to say, hear the word of the Lord, king of Judah, you who sit on the throne of David, you, your officers, and your people who enter these gates. This is what the Lord says, administer justice and righteousness. Rescue the victim of robbery from his oppressor. Don't exploit or brutalize the resident alien, the fatherless, or the widow. Don't shed innocent blood in this place. For if you conscientiously carry out this word, then kings sitting on David's throne will enter through the gates of this palace riding on chariots and horses, they, their officers, and their people. But if you do not obey these words, then I swear by myself... This is the Lord's declaration that this house will become a ruin. We call our anger righteous because it always seems righteous to us. 
We rationalize that if we are really angry, we must be really righteous because our anger is righteous. Everybody thinks their anger is righteous. No one's like, I'm angry and I'm wrong about it. Our culture has made this error. Studies show that posts on social media that are inspiring or uplifting get very little interaction. But instead, if you affirm someone else's anger, boom, to the moon. It's going everywhere. Other studies show that people who tweet or post the most about an issue are least likely to give or help with that issue. They believe that expressing their outrage is actually doing something about it. That's why in moments of nationally recognized injustice, we see a lot of hashtags and themed profile photos, but we see very little real action. Even the church falls into this trap as we tweet out thoughts and prayers and then never think or pray about it again. We tricked our brain into thinking that we did something because we posted about it. When we see something sinful or offensive happening in the world, we send out an angry post about this or that affront to God and then trick our brains into thinking that we've delivered justice. There is a way to stand up for justice without giving in to anger. And that's point number three. Don't give in to anger. Letting go of anger doesn't mean that we roll over or refuse to fight. It just means that we refuse to be driven by that anger in that fight. If we're to act against injustice, we should do it because we're angry about we shouldn't do it rather because we're angry about it. We should do it because it's not right. When Rachel Denhollander was fifteen, she suffered from chronic back pain and sought treatment from a man named Larry Nasser who was a renowned sports medicine doctor, and he sexually assaulted her repeatedly under the guise of medical treatment for nearly a year, even sometimes with her own mother in the room where he would carefully and perfectly obstruct her view so, not, so she would not know what he was doing. Rachel did not tell anybody about this abuse until she was married and had children. She realized one day that Nasser was still practicing and had access to many young girls. She decided to file a police report and a Title IX complaint with Michigan State University in August of 2016. She also shared her story with the Indianapolis Star, a newspaper that had been investigating allegations of sexual abuse in USA Gymnastics. Now, Rachel's courage inspired hundreds of other women and girls to come forward with similar allegations against Nasser. He was eventually arrested and charged with multiple counts of criminal sexual conduct and was sentenced to up to 175 years in prison. Rachel was the last of more than 150 women and girls to confront Nasser in court during his sentencing hearings. She asked the judges to impose the maximum sentence on him, saying, How much is a little girl worth? She also spoke about the need for accountability and justice for the institutions that enabled and protected Nasser. She is now an attorney, an author, an educator, and a consultant who speaks and writes about sexual abuse prevention, education, and justice. Now, Rachel didn't start this cause out of anger though she had every right to be angry. She did not act out of vengeance, 
though most would agree she was owed it. She acted because she realized there must be other victims and that there would likely be more if something wasn't done. She fought for justice, and justice won out. She not only won justice for the hundreds of others who were abused by Nasser, but she also saved an unknown number of others who might have found themselves in his care had nothing been done. Now, the world tells us that we have the right to be angry whenever we've been wronged, and that we should use that anger to seek vengeance against the person, system, or culture that wronged us. This is the concept of retribution. It's an eye for an eye. If you hurt me, I get to hurt you, and I am perfectly justified to carry my anger and bitterness and rage for as long as I decide. And as followers of Christ, we need to reject that way of thinking. We need to let go of our anger and bitterness and desire for vengeance because we know that those things will only keep us imprisoned to the past. They will harm us and not help us. And for this reason, we need to reject our right to retribution and instead trust God to judge. And such an approach feels revolutionary in our world, but it's what Jesus commanded. In Matthew 5, we're going to read 38 through 48, it says this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And as for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now some people hear these verses, especially the ones at the beginning, and think that this means allow yourselves to be victimized. And that's not it at all. This is talking about your heart and your response when you are sinned against, to be countercultural, to do the opposite of what people expect, to act with justice rooted in love instead of anger. Rachel's act was one of love. Not that she loved her abuser, but that she loved justice and loved God. And that justice being served in this matter would be an act of love to all who were hurt and all who could have been. And God delivering justice to Larry Nasser was also an act of love. It forces him to face his actions and gives him an opportunity to make things right with God, even if he won't be able to make things right with everyone he's hurt. A few weeks ago, Larry Nasser was stabbed in prison multiple times, but survived. Rachel, delivering her response to the news on Twitter, said this, None of the women I've spoken with are rejoicing today. We're grieving the reality that protecting others from Nasser came with the near certainty that we would wake up to news like this someday. Forgiveness is releasing personal vengeance and desiring for the offender to find true repentance and peace. 
The world expected her to revel in this news, to find joy in his pain and suffering. But she had a clear mind and love in her heart. And even with all that he's done, her and many of the women that have also suffered the same fate under his hands are hoping for his repentance and peace. There's a way to forgive others while still standing up for justice. And that's point number four, my last point. You can forgive the unjust. When we forgive others, we demonstrate our trust in God's justice. However, this is not to minimize or mitigate or excuse what the other person has done to us. Something that I think we know to be true is that forgiveness is hard. I've been talking throughout this series about the value of forgiveness, the benefits of forgiveness, and the necessity of forgiving those who wronged us. And all of that is true, and all of that is helpful, and yet forgiveness is still hard. It is a difficult thing to do in the best of circumstances, and it feels near impossible in the worst. In the end, though, it's necessary. Forgiveness is necessary not only because Jesus commanded us to forgive, although obviously that's hugely important, but also because forgiveness benefits us. It allows us to stop carrying anger and other emotions that are causing us harm. One more story. So Kriksa Him was a young boy in Cambodia when the Khmer Rouge regime took over in the country in 1975. He and his family were forced to leave their city and work as laborers in the countryside. In 1977, he witnessed the brutal murder of 13 members of his family by the Khmer Rouge soldiers who threw them all in a mass grave. He too was also attacked and left for dead in the mass grave. He miraculously survived and crawled out, and he swore to take revenge on the killers and spent years plotting and planning how to do it. He escaped to Thailand and lived in refugee camps for five years, where he faced many hardships and dangers. He then moved to Canada, where he continued his education and became a police officer. And it was around this time that he converted to Christianity. But he still struggled with his anger and with his hatred and his bitterness toward the men who killed his family and still had the desire to pay them back, evil for evil. He realized that he needed to forgive them in order to find peace and healing. He studied the Bible and found comfort and strength in God's word. He learned that forgiveness is not a sign of weakness, but a divine gift that frees us from the prison of resentment. He decided to return to Cambodia in 1994 and attempt to find the killers. He found two of them living in his old village, and he approached them, told them who he was and what they had done to his family. And he also told them that he had come to forgive them and shake their hands. He said that he did not want revenge but reconciliation. He said that he wanted them to know God's love and mercy and that he hoped that they would repent and accept Jesus as their Savior too. The killers, of course, were shocked and speechless. They could not believe that he had forgiven them for what they had done, and they shook his hand and thanked him for the forgiveness. This is not a story about how the killers were given grace. 
This is a story about how grace can change the heart of a victim. So Creek Sahim's story is an amazing example of how God can transform a heart filled with hatred into a heart filled with love. It demonstrates that we can extend forgiveness in even the most horrific situations. When we grasp the weight of God's grace towards us, we realize that we don't really have a choice in extending forgiveness, regardless of what has happened. Forgiveness is radical. This is discipleship itself. This requires amazing grace. The world is broken, but we can be agents of forgiveness even as we stand against injustice. There are some questions and concerns about modern life that don't have direct answers in Scripture. How much screen time should I give my kids every day? How much should I invest in retirement savings every year? What steps should I take to balance my desire to be a good steward of my resources alongside my desire to be a good steward of our environment? Sure, there are principles in the Bible that address those issues and help us find solutions, but there's not a direct connection. However, that's not the case when it comes to issues such as vengeance, rage, and wrath. On those topics, God has made this abundantly clear. He has told us exactly what he wants us to do, which means the only thing up for debate is whether or not we will obey. We'll end with the example, the words of Paul in Romans 12, verses 17 through 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, because it's written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with